0: House of Praise. Jonah was going to find out about God's kindness in a little bit, wasn't he? Jonathan, you bring that, that um, lectern for a moment, if you don't mind. He's going to find out about God's kindness just in a little bit with the great fish, wasn't he? But prior to that, he's going to find out about God's ability. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate that. God's ability to uh, affect the weather. So take your Bibles. Find the book of Jonah. chapter 1, and together let's see this morning that even though sometimes we ignore God's word, we can't ignore God's work. Jonah tried to ignore God's word, didn't he? It came to him very clearly, concisely, and he did what? He ran. When God called him east. He ran west. And I may have last week got my east and west confused a little bit. If I did, forgive me. I'm not a heretic, I promise. I just have a lot of cities to remember sometimes. And Joppa was a little bit south of where he was stationed in possibly Samaria. And so he went those few miles to Joppa, and instead of going east to, to Nineveh, he said, God, I'm going I'm to go west to Tarshish. I'm going to go the opposite direction as far Away from you as I can go. In essence, Jonah said, God, I quit. And the last part of verse 3 says that he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Well, verse 4 begins with an awesome word, doesn't it? Then the Lord. And just when you think sometimes you can ignore God and, and run, he's on your trail, isn't he? The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. The word sent there in the Hebrew is an, is an interesting word. It, it's somewhat like a baseball term. It means to hurl. And I want you to kind of get a picture of God saying, Jonah, you can't outrun me. And, and God almost kind of winding up and hurling a great wind into this sea, probably the Mediterranean. He may have been a lot further. We don't know how far this ship traveled from Joppa but probably the Mediterranean, and God sent and hurled. He pitched a great wind, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. In other words, they were on the verge of sinking. All the sailors were afraid. Notice what it says, the sailors were afraid. Jonah was on there as a passenger, wasn't he? And he wasn't afraid. He was actually sleeping. The Bible says all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. Now, these were probably Phoenician sailors. As I mentioned last week, they're probably from the area of Spain. They could have been from something even further west, the north part of Africa. We don't know, but probably a long distance. And so pluralism was was rampant. And there were several gods represented on that boat. Little G's, of course. And so they're all crying out to their own God and and. To help their own little G-gods, they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. They're thinking, guys, let's pray and let's throw and let's see if we can stay afloat. Jonah, though, had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, I want to take a moment and kind of explain the phrase deep sleep. I think there's two components going on here. I do think Jonah was tired from running. And it was probably at least a 20 to 30 mile foot trek from where he was stationed in the northern kingdom down to Joppa. It could have been more. We don't know for sure where he was in that area of the northern kingdom. But that was a, probably a pretty good foot trek. I tend to think he didn't wait around. He probably left quickly. He probably didn't spend the night like in some super eight. He just wanted to get to the port. He wanted to get to Tarshish. So I tend to think he was tired physically. But also there's a hint here that he was tired uh, emotionally you know how you sometimes feel when just things weigh in on you and you said you know I just I just want to go to bed and you're tired you're wrung out and you just kind of want to forget that life's going on if, if you've ever been through a lot of depression if you ever experienced uh, that form of of uh, discouragement that's very deep you can understand that sometimes when you're sleeping you just want to forget everything else is going on Joni here was probably experiencing both elements to some degree he was away from the Lord And he was physically tired. And both of those combined to put him into a very deep sleep. But the captain of the ship wasn't content to let Jonah stay asleep, was he? The captain, in verse 6, says, went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Here's an interesting, um, uh, I don't want to use the word poetic. This is more of a prophecy narrative. But when he says get up, it's the same word that God used. To Jonah in verses 1 and 2, when God said, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, here the captain says, Jonah, get up. I tend to think Jonah maybe thought to himself, man, I've heard those words before. Who's speaking to me now? God has a unique and ironic way sometimes of getting our attention, doesn't he? So the captain says, Jonah, arise or get up. And call on your God. The emphasis there is on your God. Join the crew of pluralistic pagans, Jonah. Someone up there will hear us and help us. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Now, you may wonder, how did they know Jonah had a God? If you recall, we're going to see this later, Jonah actually told the sailors why he was on board the ship. We'll see this in probably about verse 10. He actually said, I'm running from Yahweh. And I guess they said, hey, you know what? If you're running, that's your deal with your God. Come on aboard us. You've got the money and we'll take you where you want to go. So they knew he 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 had some connection to Yahweh. So now they call him on it. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. It's almost as if, you know what, we're doing our best to pray and our gods aren't hearing us. We're throwing cargo overboard and that's not working very well. Let's find out the singular culprit for this storm. Jonah's awake. Let's get everybody together. And so they cast lots. It would be similar to like a roll of the dice. They probably used some small, smooth stones. And we're not sure exactly how they did this. But in some way, they would land in a certain way. And if they landed in a certain way and it was your turn or it was upon you, kind of like drawing straws almost, then they sensed and they used that as a way to say, well, well, you're the man. Now, by the way, we're not advocating casting lots. But I will say it's used several times in the Bible uh, when they were dividing up the land Uh, earlier in the Old Testament, and also when they chose the twelfth apostle. After the death of Judas, they prayed first, and then they implemented this technique, and God seemed to have used that technique to appoint the twelfth apostle. Some would say he didn't, some would say he did. We have no biblical record either way. But they did pray first, and they used this technique, and God seemed to bring to light the twelfth apostle. Either way, let me say this, that God can use often even pagan practices To get his children's attention. Amen. He can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants. God's not limited. And so these guys cast lots and it fell on Jonah. Verse 8. So they asked him, tell us. And here comes the interrogation that you see sometimes from Jack Bauer in 24. He says, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country and from what people are you? I mean, they're just giving it to him, aren't they? I mean, here's the storm is there. It's been raging and they've been traveling and and they're worn out. They're on the verge of of death. And they finally got their finger on who might be the culprit. And so they're going to pin him down. Verse nine, he answered, I am a Hebrew. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say I'm a Zebulunite, which is the land from which he was from. He said, I'm a Hebrew, which is kind of a generic term to say I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. And I worship the Lord, or I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And you'll notice that on the heels of that comment, the sailors were very terrified. And here's why. In the Phoenician world, there was a God, Baal Shamem. B-A-A-L and then S-H-E-M-A-M. Baal Shemim. He was known as the Lord of Heaven. Little L and just simply Lord of Heaven. And it was their God who kind of controlled the skies. So when Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh, the God of Heaven, I tend to think it spoke to those sailors like, whoa, dude, you know a God who's way bigger than the God we have known about when it comes to the heavens and the skies. And it says, My God, Yahweh, made the sea and the land. He kind of took the opportunity in somewhat of a covert way to say, Yahweh is in control of all this. That's why they were terrified. And so they asked him, what have you done? And they knew he was running from the Lord because he'd already told them so. So they wanted more specifics. And so the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? So we're going to, We'll stop there for a moment. Look at all these circumstances. Look at all these things that happened. And there's something I want to share with you that, that's interesting to me this week. When we run, God will come after us. And if we try and sleep and still ignore him, God will wake us up. And one of the ways, one of the divine alarm clocks... That God uses to wake us up, at least in this passage from Jonah, is circumstances. In fact, when you jot this down, just one of, the, one of the first things I want to teach you this morning is that God often uses the alarm clock of circumstances to wake me up. When you read through these beginning verses of chapter 1, it is amazing the circumstances that occurred to get Jonah's attention. Remember, he ignored God's word, but he could not ignore God's work, And God went to work in all kinds of ways to get his attention, didn't he? I remember when God pressed upon our hearts. It was 1995, October, November. And we sensed a a stirring in our hearts um, to move to Iowa. Now, we had heard about Iowa through another friend, and we had been here before on a visit, but the, the stirring was a little larger. Like, God was calling us to a different Kind of ministry God was calling us to a different place, and we'd never been out here before. But we had an invitation to join a church staff, and so we were praying about that. And uh, God was really stirring our hearts. We felt very good about it. But you know, you you sometimes want to pray, and you you really want to make sure it's right. I remember in the kitchen one day, in probably November of '95, I said, "Honey, what do you think we ought to do? What do you think God wants us to do?" And she goes. What do you think? And we kept asking questions for the first one to kind of take the plunge, you know. You've done that before, haven't you? And finally, about the same time, uh, we just said, you know what? This is a great opportunity, and, and let's, just, let's just move. Let's do this. Let's, let's take this chance and really move to Iowa and join this church staff and see what God might do with us. So we said, let's do it. And we were nervous, but we thought, let's give it a shot. So after lunch, I went back to work. This is a true story. I'm not making this up because you're gonna when I say this, you're gonna you're gonna it's going be unbelievable. I went back to work and we owned a small little home on Mount Vernon Road. It was worth about sixty thousand dollars, white, just on a concrete slab, very small. And we knew we need to sell that. And we had bought it from a friend. It was kind of a fixer upper when he had it, and so we just were thinking, man, I'm who's gonna buy this. It was kind of on a not a busy road, but it wasn't exactly a an easy place to buy. So I go back to work, and I'm sitting at my desk, and I, I don't know where I was reading or what I was doing exactly, but there was a knock at my door. We had this old house that we rented. Our church actually bought this old home. It was part of our offices. And so I heard the knock at the door, and I looked up, and this big old guy, I mean big old guy, he was short, and he had dark hair. It was curly. It was kind of balding, and he had a goatee. He had lots of gold chains. And he walked in, and he stood in the doorway, and he actually filled up the whole doorway. So he's coming from the hallway. Here's the door. Here's this little room. That was my office. And he says, hey, I'm Rocky. I'm behind my desk. And I'm like, my name's not, uh, you know, the guy that always fights Rocky. You know, I was like, well, uh... so I said, hey, Rocky. He said, I want to buy you home. Just like that. It's exactly what he said. He didn't say hello. He didn't introduce himself. He said, I'm Rocky, and I want to buy you home. He talked with this accent like he's from the northeast somewhere. So I said, wow, Rocky, that's um." Uh, that's amazing. Um, have a seat. We began a conversation, and uh, he said, um, I'm from the Northeast, and I do pavement work. But part of the year, I come down here and see my family, and I need a place to live. So I'm ready to buy you a home today. And he pulls out of his pocket a wad of cash. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. More cash than i ever seen at one time. And I want to say, I want to sell my home. You know, <laughs> and I'm ready to take the plunge right here. So he's holding this cash out and he says, How much do you need? And uh, fortunately, the Lord gave me wisdom and I said, You know, Rocky, um, I need to make a couple of phone calls, you know, but just, uh, I'm not ready to, I, I just don't know what to say right now to you. I, I, he said, Well, listen. He gave me a card. He said, You called me on this number. He said, I want to buy your home. So he left and um, I sit down. I'm like, Wow, God, it's been about an hour since we said yes. And uh, that's pretty awesome that you brought a guy from the northeast in an hour all the way here to buy this little home we have. And he had offered me $5,000 down, and he said, I'll just pay you every month. We'll go to the lawyer. We'll kind of do a sale by contract, and that's how I want to do it. So I called one of our church leaders who was very wise in that area, and I said, hey, listen, here's what happened. Told him the story. Said. I said, what do I do? He said, double everything except the price of the home. I'm like, well, I don't out to, you know, kill you. He said, no, just double your down payment and shorten the years. Do everything. Just double it. See what he said. I said, okay. So I called him. I said, hey, Rocky, um, this is Todd. You know, what you doing, man? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. <laughs> but I said, hey, listen, Rocky, um, if you're really serious, um, if you can put 10000 down and we can do it in 10 years and we, can go, we got a lawyer, we can make it legal and right, that's fine. He said, I'll be right over. Over the next course of the month, he did exactly that. And um, we sold the house, moved up here. And I always look back to that situation when I read Jonah 1 because, you know what? Sometimes we think God doesn't intervene and orchestrate. But I'm going to tell you something. There are times God uses circumstances in our lives to get our attention, doesn't he? And they may not always be that dramatic or as dramatic as Jonah's. I mean, a storm on the sea. But sometimes we, we have a tendency in conservative circles to try to eliminate God and almost act like a deist, like he's way out there and I'm way down here and one day we'll see each other. But till then, good luck. Can I say to you, Jesus Christ came to earth and he said the kingdom of God is at hand. It was near and God is not distant from your life. He's not removed from your circumstances. In fact, often. He tries to work in them, and he will get your attention. He'll try to wake you up through your circumstances. In fact, I've been thinking about how to maybe give some insight on this idea of circumstances. Let me give you some, some key words as you think about them. Because not every circumstance is meant to, to say you're, you're in the wrong. Not everyone's meant to say you're in the right. There's probably a, a number of things circumstances can do for us. Let me give you five words that I think will help you, Okay to shut these down real quickly, I think, first of all, sometimes they can be corrective. Sometimes circumstances can be corrective. In Jonah's case, they were used to get him back on track, weren't they? And often in our case, God will will arrange things and do things to get us back on track. I think about David in first Samuel 12, when Nathan came to see him and Nathan told him the story of of the farmer and the and the rich man and so forth. And God had sent Nathan to make sure that he exposed David's sin. Difficult conversation, but that encounter was arranged by God to bring David to a place of repentance. Sometimes circumstances can be protective. We look at a circumstance and we think, man, this is not good or maybe it's great. But it's really God working to protect us. Remember Joseph was thrown into a pit and then instead of his brothers killing him, they sold him. You may think, man, what an awful situation. He was sold by his brothers. It saved him from murder, and by the way, it put him in Egypt where he became vice president. That circumstance was really God protecting Joseph. And several in his life were just that way. The jail situation, most of Joseph's life is is God arranging circumstances to protect Joseph so he could at the very end be just where he needed to be. Sometimes circumstances can be uh, deceptive. Do you recall in our study of Joshua, the Gibeonites, how they tricked the Israelites? I want to warn you, first family, not every, not every in, uh, uh, situation is an entrustment. Sometimes they're enticements. And you can be looking at a situation or a circumstance and think, wow, this looks too good to be true. I think I'll bite on this. I would double check everything. Because sometimes it's just a, a trap. And Joshua and the Israelites were trapped by the Gibeonites when they thought it looked so good. That circumstance was actually deceptive when used by the enemy. Sometimes our situations, our circumstances can be objective. In other words, they're just kind of neutral. It's important that I mention this because um, some things in life aren't meant to send a signal. Are you with me? For instance, when Jesus Christ taught on the mountainside in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the point of that is the Sermon on the Mount, not the mountainside. Are you with me? And sometimes you can say, well, he must have been on the mountain because I would say you're probably making the situation walk on all fours. Just sometimes let circumstances be that. They're just circumstances. Like when you put your socks on in the morning, I wouldn't think, "Okay, what does this mean spiritually? It probably doesn't mean anything. Is that okay to say? That's why I want to make sure I temper what I'm saying with with things like this. There are ones that are deceptive, protective and corrective, but there are some that are just neutral. They're objective. They're just things. That happened and then lastly, I want to mention this that all can be constructive. every circumstance can be constructive; it can work in the end for your benefit, and that 's why I think romans eight twenty eight is an awesome verse for the church to really cling to for believers to to hold as a promise. in fact, will you read this with me together these just these few words on the screen romans eight twenty eight all things work together for the good of those that love God it doesn't mean that in the immediate Or that um, in the temporary, but in the long run, the things that happen to us, the circumstances, to those that love God, God has a way of mixing that recipe up to where it eventually is for your good. It's much like what Joseph said. He says, you meant it for evil to his brothers. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I want to say to you something, church. As you live your life, the next seven days and things happen, and you do things, and you engage in activities, please don't be a practical deist. Worshiping God in this room and then leaving thinking, well, he doesn't know I exist. Realize that God is intricately involved in your life, and there will be times this week that he will be trying to get your attention through your circumstances. That will be his alarm clock to wake you up to something. So have your ears on, would you? Have your eyes on. Let's get back to our story. Let's see another one of these alarm clocks. Jonah was sleeping, but God woke him up. He uh, was pinpointed as far as his uh, blame and the issue that it was his fault. And so verse 11 says the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And he said, verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that it is my Fault. Well, you underline the words, my fault. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And instead, the men did their best to roll back to land. And interesting that Jonah, listen very carefully, Jonah, Jonah accepted more care from pagan sailors than he was willing to give to pagan people in Nineveh. I mean, think about that. God said, Earlier, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. He's like, no way, I'm running. But when Jonah was in need, he said, if you want to solve this problem, they said, we're not going to do that to you, men. We don't know you. We don't even know you're God, but we're not just going to spend your life that quickly. Isn't that amazing how sometimes pagans can show more compassion than believers? Well, they rode and they rode. But they could not bring the sea under some kind of control, obviously, because God was... In charge of this, and so the sea grew even wilder than before. And so they cried to Yahweh, "Oh Yahweh!" You see the word Lord there in all caps. I'm trying to use that word this morning to show you the, to paint a difference between their pagan gods and the God of Jonah, the God of the Hebrews, who was the one who really was in charge here. They said, "Please do not let us die for taking this man's life." So somewhere between twelve and fourteen, they agreed. Listen, we can't get back to land, Jonah. We're going to do what you said, and we're not sure what that means, but, but, man, you hope you swim. So they said, God, this Yahweh, whoever Jonah says he's running from, please don't hold us accountable. It appears that this is the only option left. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, or Yahweh, have done as you pleased. They were recognizing the sovereignty of God, weren't they? They knew he was in control of the land and the sea and the sky. So then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. Now, I want you to understand something here because you know chapters 2 through 4. But listen very carefully. In Jonah's mind, this was the end of the running and the sleeping. Jonah wasn't aware that a great fish was coming to swallow him and save him. All he knew was, man, look where my running got me. And so I think in his mind, as they went, one... Two, three, he's thinking, you know what, I tried to run, I tried to sleep, but it was to no avail. I might as well just end my life and be done with this. And they threw him overboard and the sea grew calm. Verse 16, at this the men greatly feared the Lord. You see that phrase there? If you'll track the word fear in these verses, you'll notice an interesting progression in the sailors and the men. At the beginning, they feared the sea. In the middle, they feared the God of Jonah. And at the end, verse 16, they feared Yahweh themselves. And sometimes circumstances in our lives can do that to people who are watching. They see what's happening, how we respond, whether good or bad. In this case, Jonah responded wrongly. But they can watch, and sometimes that leads into places where they no longer are fearing your God. They're now actually worshiping God themselves. I do believe these pagan sailors began to worship Yahweh. Look at what it says in verse 16. They greatly feared the Lord. And the word feared there throughout this has got the same sense of reverence and awe, by the way. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Things Jonah wouldn't even do. They were worshiping Yahweh. They had seen God involved in Jonah's life. And their response, when they thought Jonah was dead and that the sea was finally calm, they said, wow, Yahweh, Jonah's God, is the God. And they worshipped him and made vows to him. It's interesting to me that though Jonah refused to go to Nineveh and to preach, even in his apparent death, according to the sailors, God used him to win people, didn't he? It's as if God may have been saying, Jonah, I'll use you to witness one way or the other. And we can reach a whole city or we can reach a few sailors. Which way do you want it? We'll see next week that this was not the end, but at least at this point he thought it was. And let me just say a word to you about the second alarm clock then. That often God can use the alarm clock of consequences to wake us up. You see, initially it was circumstances got Jonah's attention. He realized, I have nowhere to go. I'm out of road, there's no more pillow, I can't run and I can't sleep. And so he said, I might as well own up and pay the price. I think that's probably what's going on in his mind. That's why he said, sailors, it's my fault. In fact, could you say those words with me? My fault. It sounded funny, didn't it? You don't hear that much probably, do you? Words don't come out easily. Sometimes when I go to say those words, my lips get all weird or my vault. You ever get that way? You just can't say those words very well. Well, Jonah embraced his responsibility and the ensuing consequence. And he said, you've got to throw me overboard, and that's what you've got to do. And it's my fault I embrace it. I've learned sometimes that consequences are, the, are sometimes the only way God can wake us up. Now, not every consequence ends in death. Are you with me? In this case, Jonah thought it was. But sometimes consequences are prior to that final situation. But consequences can wake us up, regardless of where they are on the spectrum. God can use them to humble us. I'm reminded of the verse in, I believe it's James, one of my favorite verses, especially when I deal with couples whose husbands or who's who's the man of the home is just really distraign i encourage them with this verse that god resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble the word resist there is like a basketball term it means to put a full court press on and often god will will bring incredible amount of pressure on someone in order to get them to submit part of that pressure part of that divine full court press That God will place upon people. Is consequences. And I often say to women. Don't rescue your husband. From the consequences of the next two or three months. Because if you do. He won't learn. Most men don't learn. Except through consequences. They have to almost be at the bottom. Jonah may be a prime example. We sometimes just don't seem to get it through our heads. Until we're at the bottom looking up. Can I say to you that. The consequences really are meant to wake us up. Now, I want to share with you just briefly a, an insight about consequences that's somewhat personal. It's not fun to hear either, but I want to share this because it's important that you hear this. And this happened in this story, and it happens in other biblical passages. Consequences are, are of the nature that until you let them settle in, they tend to ripple out. Are you with me? Until you let them settle in, they tend to ripple out. I've noticed that when you continually, when someone continually says, that's not my fault, that's not my situation, I'm not to blame, then when that hits us and it bounces back, then all the folks around us have to suffer with us. It's like the ripple effect of trying to reject consequences. No, I didn't do that. I'm not to blame. That was her fault. He said that. And it goes, boom, it ripples out, boom, ripples out. And so the folks around us who are like, man... I'm trying to deal with this, but I keep having the effects of your consequences. I saw this in my own life and family. When I refused to really deal with my own temper issues and the rage that I had inside my heart. And I won't go into the whole story now, but I was not a man under control, much less controlled by the spirit. You know who suffered the most during those months when I was, hey, God, it's not my fault. I didn't get what I deserved here. And this didn't turn like I thought here. And so you know what? I am mad. But hey, it's not my fault. You know who suffered the most? The five people in my home. And it wasn't even their fault. But sometimes in a home with someone who's angry a lot. Or is prone to temper. Or is prone to always say, well, might is right or louder is better. In those kinds of homes, no one speaks up. And I can recall watching sometimes my children. Fortunately, my two littlest girls don't even remember that. Because they weren't even born. God changed my heart. And has really just changed the deepest part of my character in the last 10 years. But there were some early moments in Brett and Bethany's life where they they suffered consequences from my own problem with temper issues. And I know Julie has. You know, I remember the past few weeks reading through this thinking, man, you know, I wonder if Jonah would have been quicker to say it's my fault. Maybe all the folks around him would not have had to suffer the storm. Can I say to you that the quicker you embrace your consequences the better those around you will feel. Is that okay to say? Are you with me? And often we keep trying to reject and protect and, and deny, and the only people that get hurt are the ones around us who are close to us. And we wonder why our families are in turmoil, or our friendships don't work, and, and why things are, are difficult. It may come back to one simple thing. You're unwilling to use the phrase, my fault. It's my fault. I've also discovered some other things about consequences. I teach this to our kids. And my son, as he's getting older, has really grasped onto this. And I really appreciate the way he's learning this. That if you accept consequences early, people will usually extend lots of mercy to you. If you just say, you know what, man, I I blew that. I'm sorry. You can't do this manipulatively, okay? So hear my heart in this. But if you'll just be willing to, to wear it, to own it. People will tend to respond in mercy, but the longer you push back, the harder they'll try to make it stick. You ever notice that? I've watched pastors hold their ground on things they knew were wrong. Let's, and, and it can be clear-cut. It's like immorality. I've watched this. They don't say anything for a while. They come out and say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. And it's like the harder they try to look innocent, the more people say, hey, we're going to make this stick. And when all's said and done, the truth is they were wrong. They'd have been tons better off to say at the very beginning, listen. This is my fault. Are you hearing me? The same thing's true in families and in sibling relationships with our parents and children as well. The harder we push back, people want to slap the Velcro on you. And they want to make it stick, don't they? But if you'll have the humble heart of a follower of Jesus and say, you know what? It could be in any situation, but the sooner you embrace consequences and own them. And say, you know, that's my fault. I have found people are easy to work with. Forgiveness and compassion seems to be a lot easier to, to experience when we admit our fault. The question I want to ask you this morning is, what, do you, what, do you, what are you doing with these two things in your life? As you watch circumstances and consequences on a weekly basis, on a, on a varied spectrum, how are you responding to them? How is God using them to wake you up? I'll give you two quick action points and. And we'll be done. I would say be alert to your circumstances. And accept your consequences. I mean, we've said that now since we've started this morning's teaching time. But just to kind of give it to you in a very succinct way. Just be alert to your circumstances. I would encourage you to have your radar on. And to look for opportunities. Just this week I heard about one of our ministry team leaders. Was driving her car. And she uh, she was driving past the home they were hoping to be able to get for one of their retreats. And she said, immediately, I sensed God say to me, stop now and call that person. And so she said, I did. I was driving by the neighborhood. I sensed this from the Spirit. And so this circumstance seemed to say, call now. She said, I pulled over, and I called her right away. And the lady on the end said, you know what? That date is open. You can have it. And you can say, oh, that's just happenstance. Oh, that's just ironic. Really? Maybe it's God using circumstances to give her a good reminder and enable her to fulfill something she wanted to see happen. Who knows? But be alert to your circumstances. Here's an awesome story. I was meeting with someone this week. Uh, They're relatively new to our church. And they got the first family through our mud volleyball tournament. You say, well, how would that happen? Well, uh, this the husband called the church office and just said, listen, I saw your mud volleyball tournament. And was wondering if I could play. I think he played on your team, Jason. And so the office, uh, I think the two Lindsay's and different people, uh, um, uh, Marty Scow, were kind of working on finding a team for him. So he got on the team, um, ended up getting to meet the Patterson, some other people, and ended up coming to First Family in a few weeks. And now he's regularly attending with his wife, and they're in our newcomer's lighthouse. And so when I was talking to him, I said, how did you hear about the mud volleyball tournament? he said, well, I am on the, uh, some kind of committee for the Relay for Life. And we're always looking for websites we can post our event, you know, like community calendars. And he said, I was checking Ankeny's website, trying to find a community calendar to post it on. I happened to see Summerfest. I was scanning through Summerfest. And he said, I love volleyball. And I saw mud volleyball, so I clicked on that. And you can kind of see this circumstantial thread that God was weaving through this man's life, probably to land in here. And I don't think we're the last stop. God is weaving a thread in this couple's life. And it started back with a job with Relay for Life and clicking around to find a way to post his event, which led to Summerfest and volleyball and for his family. And who knows why God has him here, for what ultimate reason? Are you with me? That's the kind of God we serve. And I'm just asking you to be alert to that. It goes back to our, our heart of being a 24-7 believer. It's not that we come into church and say, great, we sang our songs, we heard our teaching, we greeted our people, and we're done, see you next week. It's like we, we leave and we continue Being a follower of Christ. Listening and worshiping and obeying. Are you with me? And that's the heart of a first family church attender. So when you leave here today. Until you get back next week. Be alert to your circumstances. You are serving the God of heaven and earth. And he may very well need to orchestrate some things in your life. And someone else's life. To wake you or them up. And then this week. When something doesn't go right, and by the way, it won't. That'll probably happen by tonight. And you're the reason. And it could be on a grand scale or a small scale. I'm not trying to say the world's going to end by tonight, but can I give you some some suggestions here? Just accept blame and embrace the consequence. Just say, hey, that's my fault, and do it early. You may not save yourself a lot of trouble, but you sure will save those closest to you a lot of trouble. And isn't that the real point of compassion, where you care more for the other person than you do yourself? When God wakes you up this week, it will be for one of two things. Probably to make you stop running. I brought these just to kind of visualize running. Hey, no more running, okay? And no more sleeping. He's going to use circumstances and consequences to make sure we don't run make sure we don't sleep.